This is Cinephile. This is incredible. Moonlight won Best Picture. One of the best actors alive here on the studio, Billy Bob Thornton. Great to see you, man. The point of good acting is that you're supposed to be real. Be real. Great to have here on Cinephile Ice Cube, my new best friend. Yeah, yeah, man. Here's the man himself, Robert De Niro. Who can tell what a reaction will be to a film that nobody knows? Viggo Mortensen. It's one of those movies that when it finishes, you go, now what's going to happen? Big guest, Mark Wahlberg. Ted was one of those pivotal moments in my career, like Boogie Nights, where, you know, the subject matter just seems so ridiculous and absurd, yet when reading the script, you know, you never want to put it down. Cinephile. Cinephile. The Adnan Verk Movie Podcast. Oh, man, I just got finished saying how you have to be on point vocally as Jim Brockmeyer, and I completely punted that one. From the top, Will Arnett, Matthew Berry, Rob Burnett, Dennis Leary, Vigo Mortensen, Ron Shelton, Robert De Niro, Terry Crews, Norm MacDonald, J.K. Simmons, Kevin Hart, Christopher Guest, Matt Atchity, Billy Bob Thornton, Miles Teller, Mahershala Ali, Barry Jenkins, Keegan-Michael Key, Mark Wahlberg, Owen Gleiberman, Ice Cube, Ben Lyons, Chris Beecham, Hank Azaria, Ken Jong, Jessica Alba, Ben Mankiewicz, Jeff Garland, David Duchovny. The star-studded guests that we've had in our first year on Cinephile, many thanks to all of them, our sensational talent bookers for making it all happen, to Pete Genesini, who gave us the go-ahead, and of course, my man Dan Stanzik, loyal producer and friend for putting it all together. We've made it. One year of Cinephile, and... Um, how does it feel now, Dan, to have climbed the mountaintop when it comes to podcasts here at ESPN? Um, the year went quickly. I can't believe we've made it this long. It feels like just yesterday the whole thing started. Still feels new. Yeah, I, which I think is a good feeling. Still feels fresh for us. I like the fact Dan earlier in the week had tweeted, because May 10th was actually the one-year anniversary officially. So he had tweeted out, you know, let us know your favorite moments. So go ahead. Read a smattering of what people had to say. We got, we got to find him first. Here we are. Hang on. Oh, no um, in session films that Adnan's response to going to the Oscars was brilliant. Same with his interview with De Niro. That's nice. Pretty good. Mm-hmm. Dave Mapeak, loyal listener, tweets all the time. The great Forrest Gump debate was fantastic. Also at Dan Stanzik, indignation over the Bill Murray top five. Hashtag quick change. Yeah, that's right. Quick change is a memorable moment. You were furious about that. Still, still upset about that. <laughs> Rushmore, number one, Bill Murray best <laughs> films. Unbelievable. Mitch Galloway says, I'd have to go with either your discussion on Casablanca, your Cagney impersonation. Did you do one? Yeah, I did that in the review, and I was talking about White Heat, and my friend Rob Lemley mentioned that as well. He said, you sound kind of like a drunken Harry Carey, like Will Ferrell doing it. But basically, it was just Cagney going... Give me another Cagney. Let's hear hear the gangster. Can you believe it, boys? It's a copper. I was about to trust this dirty copper. It's the one scene in White Heat where he's enraged by the betrayal. Okay. Not terrible. What do you tell me? He says it's one of the best moments of the year. He says, or your review of silence. Review of silence. Great. Scott Shemansky, nice Polish last name there, says the first episode after the Oscars liked the genuine excitement. I appreciate that. Very and nice. And JP Murrieta loved the three words game, but I would guess British is the most popular <laughs> word used. JP sarcastic. He's good, though. I like him. And lastly, Quincy Wheeler says, can't top your recap of covering Oscars, but a personal favorite is your interview with Vigo Mortensen. Oh. Congrats, and here's to many more years. Yeah, Vigo, very good guy. I agree. He was Soft-spoken, understated, but very insightful, very smart guy. Uh, your favorite moment, Dan? First year of cinephile in the books? What about you? I got I got a bunch. Sure. I was, I was thinking about it, and it has to be either the Oscars or De Niro, and it's like 1A, 1B. I feel like Sophie's Choice. Impossible to pick just one. The Oscars was incredible, but I'm going to go with De Niro because the Oscars – now, seriously, this is surreal, and much love to Ben Lines for making it happen. I could never thank him again, and I will thank him for the rest of eternity – but it's not like I was a presenter. Like, it was still incredible that I walked the red carpet. I was backstage. But it's not like I held an Oscar. Like, there, there's more goals to go here. It's still incredible. But Robert De Niro is one of my favorite actors. And I literally got to look him in the eye. We had a 20-minute conversation one-on-one. He afterwards, you know, followed up by sending me an email of an article about the Hindu Kush in Pakistan. Like, that that personal connection there with Bob. His guy followed up later on looking for college basketball tickets. Like, I mean, that that, that is is irreplaceable. But at the Oscars, you, you come from a background in sports. At the Oscars, there was a play-by-play <laughs> moment that you had right. that went viral. It is one true. One of the most controversial Oscar endings of all time. It is amazing the way it laid out. You're right. If it was just any other Oscars, and that's not to say that they're passe, it still would have been incredible for me. But you're right. The combination of... 
The fact I had the viral moment on Deadspin, Moonlight won Best Picture. I mean, no matter what, it's going to be my favorite Oscars of all time. And you are right. It was memorable, certainly the way it ended. But uh, those, those two definitely stick out for me. But you're right. I'm glad somebody mentioned the Billy Bob Thornton interview. I thought he was great. I thought Christopher Guest was a really good interview. He made me very awkward. I was squirming the whole time, but he's very funny. I think he was enjoying the fact I was uncomfortable. Even Kevin Hart, the fact he didn't like the shirt, that was memorable. Right. That was. Who do, which guest do you think enjoyed their time with you the most? I think Mahershala was pretty invested. I think he did a good job of like being genuine. Barry Jenkins, I think, really enjoyed the interview. Those were both on the phone, which isn't quite the same. Uh, as far as being in person, Terry Crews, I thought was pretty good. He was very good, yeah. I'm going Billy Bob. I think he loved it. Yeah. I think so. I mean, I asked Katie afterwards, our talent poker, Katie Mervaldis, who's the best. And she was like, no, she goes, I can tell like when they're kind of doing it when they're engaged because he was really engaged with you. And the nice compliment at the end, Billy Bob said, he goes, oh, I know you like movies, but I didn't know you knew that much. So that was very sweet. So thanks so much to everybody for listening to the first year of Cinephile. Coming up today, we're going to have a terrific show. We're going to have Kevin Spacey in the Actors Showcase. We're going to have the usual three words. And perhaps one of the great achievements of Martin Scorsese's career. He's this director known for the gangster films, the crime films. So how in the world did he make a kid's movie? We'll talk about Hugo and the success of that film. Plus, our special guest, Terrell Jackson-Williams. He is one of the stars of the very funny show, Brockmire. But since it is our one-year anniversary, we're going to have a quiz. Free shirts. Now, they're flying off the shelves here. I believe we have, we're out of large whites. We just have large black, extra large white, extra large black. But Dan has dialed up uh, a quiz for all of you. If you're a cinephile fan, you're going to get this. Now, we've tried this a couple times. Once it was very easy. Once it was too difficult. Like kind of like Goldilocks here in the Three Bears. Once it was just right. So I think this quiz, again, you've got to be an avid listener, but it's not impossible. Figure it out. If you listen, you're going to get it. Dan, the rain is yours. All right. Seven questions. How are we doing this? First 10 answers that reply back on Twitter to at Cinephile ESPN, get shirts? Let's do that. That's the easiest Same method. as always? Yeah. First 10? Yes, although I'm worried. Are people going to, and I know you've already done this. You've done the math. The answers are going to be able to fit in 140 characters? Oh, for sure. I believe okay. you'll have 58 characters left. If okay. I, <laughs> I knew you had done the math on this. Great. Of course. Okay. Question okay. one. What was Adnan's first question to Robert De Niro? Do you remember? Uh, I do. If you I do, do, don't say it. I do. It, do. it took okay. me a second, though. Okay. Yeah, right. Because right. Right. I only knew the opening to an F that we kind of were, we were yeah. flowing. Question two, also De Niro related. Which actress did Robert De Niro mistakenly <laughs> call Amy at an award show? I feel like you and I enjoyed that story more than anybody else, but I think it's a good story. I laugh. <laughs> All right. Question three. What did Al Pacino say when Adnan asked him about Steph Curry? That's a great one because that's Kirchner's favorite thing. I think it's his favorite cinephile moment, actually. That would be really. His. He, he loves it. Tweeted it in. Yeah, he goes. That story is so great, and I'm like, why? Because it's just I can just picture Al Pacino saying that. I'm like, all right, it's true. All right, next question. In which film does Adnan believe Jack Nicholson gave his best performance? That I don't remember. Yeah, I don't. That I don't remember what I said. You know this next one. Which actor did Adnan ask Jessica Alba if she thought he looks like? That's a great one. She immediately said no, for what it's worth. Right. She just kind of, no, she's scared. She's like, yeah, she's like, no, what do you think? She goes, nah. Yeah. All right. All right. We recently did a segment where Adnan guessed a movie based solely on its tagline. Whose podcast did we borrow <laughs> that idea from? We were inspired by. Inspired by. Yeah. And finally, who wrote the early 1980s legal drama that ends with the main character drinking coffee, yeah. but you don't know whether or not there's any alcohol in it? One of the signature films here, Cinefile. Yeah, if we're doing the one-year anniversary, <laughs> that film is getting brought up one way or another. So seven questions. You can fit them all into one tweet, at Cinephile ESPN. First 10, get a T-shirt, which we're running very low on. Yes. No large whites. we got large blacks, XL, uh, both black or white as well. Now, I'm going to review the comedian in a minute here, but didn't feel like buying it on iTunes, didn't wait for the red box. Let me just go ahead and buy it. 27 bucks for the comedian, and I'll give you my review shortly, and I want Dan to watch it first. So I don't want to say this is a new DVD. It's going to be a previously owned DVD seen twice by me and Dan, but then we have a trivia question here in honor of the one year anniversary to win your DVD of the comedian. What is your Robert De Niro question? I can't believe you spent $27 to see this film. <laughs> Wait till you watch it. Maybe you'll like it. Okay, you told me it should be a Scorsese and or De Niro yes. question. Perfect. So you, I guess in theory you just gave a clue, mm. which is fine. Yeah, that's fine, yeah. All right, here's the question. Again, same thing. First person to tweet it, at Cinefile ESPN, gets the used DVD. Previously owned. Previously owned DVD. Okay, yeah. which film was Marty talking about when he said, quote, I was extremely disappointed when the movie was finished because I had had a really bad experience making it. 
but over the years I've been able to see that it has truth to it. I still don't like it, yet in a way I love it. Some people don't understand the ending, others do. Yeah, I think that A is a phenomenal quote. B, I love the movie, and C, that just speaks to him as an artist. Like he's so self critical, and yet he recognizes there's appreciation for this film. And in fact, William Rankin, who's a loyal fan of the podcast, that was one of the nicest comments. As always, we're on iTunes. Make sure you rate the podcast. I do them out of Four Maple Leafs. There's five stars there. And then post a comment. It's one of the nicest comments. William Rankin wrote that. He said, this film, he goes, I wasn't sure about it. I watched it again. And I, whatever. He enjoyed my review and appreciation of it. So hopefully you'll get that previously owned DVD of The Comedian. Uh, let's do some reviews, shall we? Guardians of the Galaxy Part 2. So the first one was a real surprise because it was an out-of-the-box hit. Uh, it made $745 million worldwide gross. And the reason why it succeeded was in a lot of ways like Deadpool, a reference sense of humor, off-kilter, and a killer soundtrack. Again, a methodology that other films should have followed, but these two really seem to understand that. And I think that... Oftentimes what has happened is there's such a glut of superhero movies. When there's a movie that actually goes off the beaten path, people really respond to it. So Guardians is a huge hit. Let's make a second one. So no surprise, the sequel is not as strong as the first one because that freshness and inventiveness is naturally gone. And the plot kind of goes in a bunch of different directions. And there's definitely some more touchy-feely moments, more sentimental moments. But there's still the humor. It's still silly. Now you've got Baby Groot saying, I am Groot. You've still got a really funny Bradley Cooper as a raccoon, whatever you want to call him. And you've got Kurt Russell now in the movie. And I love Kurt Russell. I think he's always worth the price of admission. He was the best part of The Hateful Eight. He was so great in that Tarantino film. So the fact that Russell's in the movie, to me, is already a plus. And it's got a good soundtrack. Golick gave it four donuts just because he loves the song Brandy, which it opens with. Classic from the 1970s, Looking Glass. And I love uh, Sam Cooke. There's a great song, Bring It On Home To Me, one of the great soul songs of all time. So that's in the movie. So maybe I'm being uh, a little generous there with regards to the grade. But again, it fits It fits the aspect of what you expect in a blockbuster. I think the plot goes a bit haywire. As I tweeted, it's bloated and bombastic. Like it's, You could have cut easily 15, 20 minutes and nobody would have noticed. But you know what? A lot of blockbusters do not deliver. And if you like the original Guardians of the Galaxy, then I think you'll like the sequel and you'll enjoy it. Now, my friend Justin Havens... We call him Jay Hay. He's part of the Fireball Express, which is on Buster Olney's Baseball Tonight podcast every Friday. Always a must listen. Make sure you subscribe. And Jay is one of the producers on Baseball Tonight. Great guy. Very funny and sarcastic. And he did not like Guardians of the Galaxy 2. So he sent me his review. And as a designated reviewer, I'm just so amused by his rage that I have to read to you Jay Hay's review. It basically goes as far as a flimsy script and bad acting can take you relying to an uncomfortable degree on a great soundtrack. Classic rock can't replace a script or replace jokes. Even considering it is PG-13 and not R, it was remarkably unfunny. The first was entertaining. <laughs> this one felt forced and stale. The plot itself was bad and borderline incoherent. There's about five times too many sentimental, heartfelt, come-to-Jesus moments featuring far too many characters. The entire Gamora Nebula plotline was poorly developed and a total waste of time. Way too much Kurt Russell. I think he managed to go the entire movie without delivering an entertaining line. It was at least 30 minutes too long. The best part of the entire movie was when the blue guy was whistling his arrow, killing all the bad dudes. And I honestly, in real time, could not believe how long they let that scene play out. I think they had to put the song on repeat to accommodate. Once again, that is from Justin Havens. You can find him on Twitter. Jay Hay Kid, let them know your thoughts. Because Guardians of the Galaxy 2, people liked it. I mean, Trey Wingo, two thumbs up. 82% Rotten Tomatoes. I'm giving it two and a half Maple Leafs. I think it's a serviceable sequel. It fits the bill. Jay Hay, zero Maple Leafs. Let him know your scorn towards that. The first one, Dan, did you see it? Did you enjoy it? Haven't seen either. Yeah. I'm not a big superhero movie kind of guy. I did enjoy Deadpool last year. So, you know, I might give these ones a chance. Yeah, I'll say it's in that vein, although I will also say Deadpool clearly better. I would rather go watch Deadpool again than watch Guardians of the Galaxy 1 again. The next film to review is the comedian Robert De Niro. Of course, we all know Bob's one of my favorite actors, but it's been lean the last couple decades. Somebody asked me the last great film he was in, and I said, well, Silver Lines Playbook. He was nominated for an Oscar. Dan will point out supporting performance. So great lead role. I thought Heaty was... He didn't deserve it, too, for the record. You don't think he deserved the Oscar nomination? he got that nomination on Reputation alone. That was a Meryl Streep nomination. (laughs) But it was his best performance in years. Which tells you something. Right. The last lead performance, co-lead, will say Heat, which was 1995. 
Uh, so there's been a lot of misses along the way. And as De Niro has said, whenever he's been asked about this, he'll say, listen, I'm just grateful. I've made enough movies that people do seem to remember. If people love Mean Streets and Raging Bull and Taxi Driver. I'm glad they still remember those. Godfather 2, of course. So it is something to be said, though. All those movies I just said, like nothing past 1990, and we're now in 2017. So the comedian comes about. He's been working on it for about 10 years. Art Linson's one of the producers. Four different guys wrote the script, which is always a flag to me. I go, hang on a second. If there's that many scriptwriters working on it, that means it was different iterations. That means there was different issues with it. That said, I'm reading the Casablanca book about Pre- five different scriptwriters. Right. Three got credit for it, but at least five people. That's true. Sometimes it can really work, but sometimes when you hear a lot of rewrites and different guys, you go, mm, I'm not sure where this is going. But I love a good Comedy Central roast. And of course, Jeff Ross, who's one of the funniest roast masters ever, was a part of the script for the comedian. So that gave me, I'm like, well, he's a guy who's pretty funny. So if he's involved in this story about an insult comic past his days, we got a chance. So like I said, Daenerys were working on it for about 10 years. They finally released it in February. Got torpedoed 25% by the critics on, on uh, Rotten Tomatoes. It was only here in Central Connecticut for like a week because I was like, oh, I got to go see it. And I was like, wait, what? It's already gone? I'm like, man. So... <laughs> I had to go pick up my Blu-ray of Silence, which is 40 bucks. By the way, slim on features. There's just like one feature on there. It's like, oh, Scorsese talks Silence. I'm like, 40 bucks on Blu-ray. Yeah, but the movie was two and a half hours. How much more do you want? (laughs) I want features. I want Liam Neeson 101. I want audio commentary. I want director commentary from Marty. I want Andrew Garfield talking about the process. I want Adam Driver visiting Jesuits. Like, I want features. I'm not getting those features. But while I was there, I said, you know what? I'm still waiting for the comedian to come out on the Blu-ray. There's no excuse me, Blu-ray, Redbox or DirecTV or whatever the hell. So we can only just buy it. Twenty-seven bucks for the comedian. Already knowing this is probably a bad purchase, even knowing how much I love De Niro. And this is the premise. He's this insult comic who's washed up, whose best days were on a TV show where he was known for saying the catchphrase. And the catchphrase is Aline, where he gets upset. Kind of like a playoff the honeymooners Ralph Cramden. And so immediately you see parallels. You go, wait, De Niro the actor. Gets criticized for his recent roles. His best work was years ago. He often gets bothered to do catchphrases, which he has joked about on Fallon. He's like, yeah, people every day of my life come up to me and say, hey, hey, do the Travis Bickle. Do you talking to me? He's like, trust me, I get all the time. So it's funny watching the movie. I go, oh, there's definitely parallels here. And I got to be honest, because I know that everyone is going to say this is De Niro bias, which is why I want Dan to watch it. And Dan is going to give his review on the next in a file better than expected. All right? It's, it was, it was, first off, he is a foul-mouthed comic. Like, I thought after Dirty Grandpa and the nader that that was, that De Niro, in terms of insult comedy, could go no lower. There is some humor in here. Like, as a stand-up, he tells jokes about incest. I was like, wow, is that Robert De Niro saying those lines? Let's just say, for sure, Jeff Ross was very involved on the stand-up routines here. And there's something jarring about seeing the living legend that is Robert De Niro deliver the material. But here's why it works. It sounds like essential miscasting. You're like, wait, De Niro's playing this insult comic, but he's invested in the role. For a rare time, he actually seems committed to the role, and I can genuinely tell he actually liked playing a comedian. Not in the iconic man or the king of comedy, one of his best roles, but apparently something about comedians De Niro likes doing. And in fact, in interviews, he said, no, listen, some of my favorite comedians, Billy Crystal, Richard Belzer, he goes like, I find the idea of comedy funny. And when he's really funny, like Midnight Run or Analyze This or Meet the Fockers, clearly De Niro has that comedic attachment. So the movie feels very familiar, but it's genuinely funny because it is cutting edge. They go for the jugular. And the other thing it has going for it is a terrific cast. Edie Falco from The Sopranos plays his agent trying to get him work. Um, Harvey Keitel is in the film. It's great to see Keitel and De Niro together. It's not quite Mean Streets or Taxi Driver, but it's not as bad as Little Fockers. They have a couple of good scenes where they go toe-to-toe. Um, Judd Apatow's wife is in the film. Uh, her name, I'm mistaking here for a second. What's her name? Lindsay Mann? No, is that... Uh, Judd Apatow's wife. Is that Lindsay Mann then? Maybe yeah. it is her name. Okay, yeah. All right, sorry. Why am, why am I questioning that that's actually... It must be, but all right. Anyways, Leslie Mann. Leslie, Leslie Mann. Mann. That's, okay. yeah, that's why I did not feel familiar. <laughs> Leslie Mann plays his wife in a love interest, and she's good. And they make point of the fact that... Hang on a second. De Niro's this guy who in the movie is 67. He's actually 73. Leslie Mann's quite a bit younger. She's like, hang on a second, old man. What are you doing hitting on me? And if you're thinking, ah, oh, rom-com is going to get gooey here, De Niro falls for Leslie Mann... Let's just say it doesn't necessarily go in that direction. Danny DeVito is also in the movie. Roger Ebert once said, Danny DeVito, you put him in any movie, he'll give you two things every time, likability and energy. And it is absolutely true. I'm not saying Danny DeVito is a great actor, but any movie he's in, he's going to give you likability and energy every single time. And he plays De Niro's brother, and he has some funny lines in the movie as well. 
Now, why did it get 25% on Rotten Tomatoes then if it's not, if, if I'm telling you it's such a good movie? Well, the last 20 minutes, I, I can already see where it's going. So I'm like, well, how are they going to end this story? You know, he's this aging comic. He's known for his catchphrase, kind of rom com but it's funny. He's an insult comic. He can't all of a sudden go soft. He can't go gooey and sentimental. The last 20 minutes, let's just say that's where the third act kind of fell apart for me. It was a weak ending. Oftentimes, I, find, I don't know if you find this too, Dan. When I say a movie is about anything, they go, well, how would you have ended it? And I'm like, well, that's not my job. My, my job is to tell you what the movie's about and how it is. I can think of alternative endings in my head, but just because I don't like the ending doesn't mean I can think of a better ending. All I'm telling you is the way the comedian ends is not an ending that I found satisfactory. I don't know how it would have ended, but I didn't like this ending. Yeah, you don't necessarily have to have a solution to everything, but you can still point out problems. That's all you're doing here. That that was a problem. The ending right. wasn't good. I, I can't fix it. I'm just telling you it didn't work. Correct. So the that's, actual that's the bonus of being a critic. You don't have to provide <laughs> solutions. You just point out flaws. Exactly. I just tell them what didn't work. So listen, he's invested. He's committed. It's funnier than I thought it would be. It's an amiable couple hours. I should give it two and a half Maple Leafs because that would be a good movie because it's Bob. I'm giving it three Maple Leafs. And Dan's going to give his review next time, and he's probably going to give it two Maple Leafs. And if he's really scathing, he's going to go one and a half and go, Burke, take your De Niro Keitel blinders off. There's some funny lines. You're going to, I'm telling you right now, the wedding scene, you're going to laugh at. Like, De Niro goes all, I'm, this incest bit, I'm like, man, that's Robert De Niro. You're going to laugh more than you think. I want Havens to <laughs> do a review of this one, too, after <laughs> the scathing one he gave to Guardians, too. Havens is the best. So that is the comedian. We don't talk much TV. My friend Cap says, listen, you got to mention TV. They say TV has never been better, but this is not Mr. TV show. This is Cinephile. I don't have time to watch iRobot or uh, The Crown or any of these other great shows people tell me about. What's the one? Anish Shroff tell me, oh, The Americans is supposed to be great. I can't get through uh, Matt Reesiphons or whatever the hell, Kerry Russell. I, I don't have the time for this. A movie, 30 bucks for the comedian. It's two hours a minute out. The Americans, that's like 30 hours of my life. I can't do it. But I make exceptions. And one of the exceptions I do make is because I love Giamatti. I did watch Billions. And so season two in the books, I got to be honest, episode four, I thought about punting. I said, I'm literally just watching the show because I love Paul Giamatti. It's just a cat and mouse game. He's a district attorney. Damien Lewis is the bad guy. He's obviously this cheating banker. And that's all this movie is. They're never going to catch each other. It's not going to be until the sixth season. It's 100 episodes. right? finally getting in prison. So we already know the outcome. You're just watching it for the mechanics of it. And it's not gripping enough it's just not interesting enough and damian lewis was really good in the homeland particularly the first season he just kind of keeps contorting his face and it just feels really contrived and giamatti as good as an actor as he is i'm like this proves the essential conflict of any sort of drama you've got to have good content like you can have all the players you want you can have great actors but if the content is not interesting well then nobody's going to watch it nobody's going to listen to it no one's going to like it and so with billions i'm like all right i got the content all right they're they're trading and it's stocks and it's all this evil chicanery going on. I'm like, where's the point of it? And this is impressive that Billions pulled it off. Season two, when I thought about punting, I thought about, I was going to give up on the show or record it and just watch Giamatti's scenes. They flipped the switch. And the way they did it was they started focusing on the interpersonal relationships and the relationship with Damian Lewis and his wife in the show and Paul Giamatti and his wife in the show. And it was impressive to me how Billions season two from like episode five on really hit its stride so much so the last three episodes I thought were sensational. They really kind of ended the season on a high note. And I, I think that's a credit to the to the cast and the producers and, and for everybody kind of figuring it out. They're like, all right, this is kind of a slow burn, but let's see if we can make this show fly. And for those that know nothing about it, season one, Giamatti was on Colbert, and Colbert said, I popped in the DVD to watch with my wife and kids. The first scene is Paul Giamatti hogtied while this dominatrix comes up over top of him and urinates on his face. That's the first ever scene of Billions. You're like, what is going on here? And there are two types of people in the universe. Some go, that's exactly how you start a show on cable. You want my attention? Alec Baldwin, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. Oh, have I got your attention now? I'm starting with a movie star hogtied and a woman urinating. And then the other people are going, that's exactly how you don't start a show. It's way too contrived. It's way too forced. It's way too gimmicky. It's way too shock value. Hey, look at this show. It's going to be different. We've got S&M involved. I'm not sure which of those two camps I fall on, but it was unforgettable seeing it. And I can tell you this. Season two, a lot less S&M because Giamatti and his wife are, you know, on the outs. So there's no, there's no chance for any sort of fun or frivolity. They're often arguing with each other and bickering and fighting over their kids. But it's a show that really did find its stride, and I'm impressed. Billion season two, I'll give it mm, three Maple Leafs. 
because the first half of the season was still fairly so, but three Maple Leafs overall for the season. And, of course, I'll be watching season three. Last one for you I want to mention here is Legion of Brothers, and this is a war film. This is uh, the story of what happened to a specific mission um, after 9-11 and what their mission was with going towards the Gulf War and, you know, essentially trying to cause some damage here against al-Qaeda. And what I liked about this documentary, it focuses on this this specific uh, regiment and the guys who are still alive, thankfully, and telling their stories about that past. But it's a rare war movie that will appeal to hawks and doves. If you're somebody who is, I don't want to say pro-war, but somebody who really believes in military protection and believes that we should invest in that, there's a reason why 51% of the budget goes towards national defense because there are people who want to attack us, and that's why this is important. Then this film, I think, will stir up emotions within you because you will see the selflessness of these warriors and appreciate what the military does in protecting us. And if you're a dove, if you're somebody that feels like that war was avoidable, and it was done under false pretenses, and you don't care for it, I think you're still going to find the documentary interesting and revealing because it focuses on the human level and what the suffering these guys overdo. And one scene in particular, the guy's talking about being a gunner, and he said, you know, the question I always get asked by people is, like, how many people did you kill? Because you have to understand in war, like, you're not keeping score. Like, it's not duck hunt. Like, because you're not face-to-face with the person killing them. You're literally just seeing an object. Oftentimes, it's late at night, infrared, et cetera. And, and you're just hoping that it's it's the right person. You go from there. And I just thought about that. And I was like, that amount of guilt that these guys must fight. And just, I mean, it really is uh, genuine, uh, the trauma that these guys endure. And just on a basic human level, whatever you think about war, and whatever you think some wars are, are valid and worth fighting for, on a human level, I think you have to appreciate what these soldiers go through and how incredible it is, the sacrifices they make and how it never leaves you. And that's what a lot of them kept saying. They said, you don't understand. You cannot flip on a switch and go kill people and then come back to civilization and society expected to be real. And they tell genuine stories about not quite domestic abuse, but certainly strained relationships with their family and how the anger comes back and how to deal with it. So Legion of Brothers, a documentary. It's on Netflix. I encourage you to check it out. I believe it's having a small theatrical release, uh, but it was a powerful documentary. I'm giving that three Maple Leafs for its look at that. So four in all, Gardens of the Galaxy Part 2, I'm giving two and a half. The Comedian, a soft three Maple Leaf. This might be, Sansing will call this the most skeptical three Maple Leaf review since I gave The Shallows three Maple Leafs with Blake Lively. Which I remember you were, you were just aghast at my review of that one. Uh, Billy and Season 2 were given Three Maple Leafs and Legion of Brothers as well. Those are your reviews for now. Actor Showcase. Had a lot of good options. Who do we got this time, Dan? Kevin Spacey. Nice. Well acclaimed actor. I feel like he hit the, uh, the height of his appeal in the late 90s, and that's why my list will give away where we're going. Uh, just spoiler alert here. The following films did not make it. Because Spacey, when he's great, he's phenomenal. When he's bad, he's Capex bad. He's Life of David Gale bad. He's Pay It Forward bad. He's Shipping News bad. He's Beyond the Sea bad. I'm only like one of the five people in the world who like Beyond the Sea, just because I like Bobby Darren that music. Spacey was far too old to play the singer, but he told the story in like flashback as if this is what Bobby Darren would do because he loves those loud singers that era. He also got a Golden Globe Award nomination. Look up Beyond the Sea. The Rotten Tomatoes got to be like 30%. People hated that movie. I did like it. Did not make my top five. Honorable mention, Looking for Richard. He was in Pacino's Passion Project. Small role, but it's true that him and Al are good buddies, so I wanted to mention that. Uh, quickly, we should point out House of Cards is not going to be making this top five yeah. because this is a best movie roles, not a best roles as an actor. A television show wouldn't count. Very Correct. good point because obviously that is a show which has uh, led to his resurgence. Number five is The Big Kahuna. Based on a play, him and Danny DeVito. Speaking of energy and likability, they play a couple of salesmen uh, trying to pull one over here. Of course, when it comes to salesmen, it's not quite as good as my number four film, but Spacey's really good in this film. He's had such... Um, you know what I think of Kevin Spacey? I think of verbal calisthenics. I think with a script, I think he's so good at just exercising his way in and out of language. The way Spacey uses language is so unique to him. Like I, He is a great mimic, right? He does a great Pacino impression, Christopher Walken, et cetera. But verbal calisthenics, think about that when you watch Spacey the next time. He's always articulating, and his characters are always so smart. They're always so cunning. Number four is Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. Speaking of the calisthenics, look at the way he enunciates that famously with Jack Lemmon at the end. How did you know I made it up? You know, in this film where everybody is a scoundrel, <laughs> the beauty of Glengarry Glenn Ross is nobody is as dastardly as Kevin Spacey. John, you know, Mr. Williamson's the one that you don't pay much attention to. You figure the other guys 
Ricky Roma and Moss and Shelly the Machine Levine of the Scene Stealers. Nobody has a blacker heart than Mr. Williamson, who you think is just the nebbish with the glasses and the typical parted haircut. Spacey makes you show the true villainy of his guy, what he does at the end of Glenn Larry Glenn Ross. Number three is L.A. Confidential. It is cop as movie star Jack Vincennes. A wonderful film. Great script. Uh, Well-directed by the late Curtis Hansen and an excellent cast. If you go back and watch it, you see Russell Crowe and Guy Pierce and Kim Basinger won an Oscar and Spacey and Danny DeVito again. We love DeVito. He's all over the place. Spacey grinning like a Cheshire cat. Uh, he's this cop who loves the limelight, loves um, getting all the tabloids around him, but just a really smart, effective role from him. Number two is American Beauty. Like I said, late 90s really is wheelhouse Spacey. I think the movie's a little overrated. I don't think it should have won Best Picture. I get nausea when I see the scene where Wes Bentley starts talking about their life, and it's like a, a paper a garbage bag like floating in the wind. Like There's some real pretentious howitzers in American Beauty. Alan Ball, the writer with that one. Sam Mendes, the director. But it's beautifully shot, and space is the best part of the movie. This guy who you can totally see, middle of May, middle-aged American, frustrated, stuck in the doldrums, doing what he does in the shower every morning, and then all of a sudden he gets rekindled because he falls in love with Mina Suvari, this very young girl, but it's to Spacey's credit that he makes the character funny, and you cheer for him. You really do root for this guy because you can see so many sad sacks in their life, and now he's getting a second chance at enjoying life and being back again. And the number one film, of course, it would be a verbal kint, Kevin Spacey in The Usual Suspects, which is, Dan and I would agree, a very good movie, which becomes an outstanding movie because of the ending. It's, it's, it's not quite like the NBA playoffs, bad, and then the ending's going to be great when it gets to be the Cavs-Warriors. But it's solid, and then the ending is spectacular. And again, it's spacey. Just like Mr. Williamson and Glenn Gary Glenn Ross, he upends the character's expectations around him, and he upends the audience's expectations. You think that he's the one who is being cuckolded. Instead, he's the one pulling the strings. Kevin Spacey, and in fact, again, verbal calisthenics. Think of that final monologue, the way he's using those words, and the way it's intercut. Masterful performance. And usual suspects. I may have missed it at the beginning. Did you mention seven not being not making the cut? No, I should have mentioned seven actually. Seven. Yeah, I gotta get seven in there. You know what? Scratch the big kahuna. Big kahuna uh, seven, not a large role, but he's awesome in it. Let's get seven is in at number five. Big kahuna is an honorable mention. Glaring omission there. Thankfully, Dan cleaned it up. That is the actor's showcase with Kevin Spacey. Especially I love just seven, the part where he just goes, Detective. <laughs> oh, he didn't know. Go back and watch 7 again. He's great. Streaming suggestions. This is being released on May 16th and so on Netflix. Now, Place Beyond the Pines is available. A sensational first act with Ryan Gosling, a solid second act with Bradley Cooper, and a truly atrocious third act. And you'll want to see where this movie goes. But our friend Mahershala Ali is in the first part with Ryan Gosling. So if you liked his work in Moonlight, you should go back and check out Place Beyond the Pines. He's got a couple of good scenes there with Ryan Gosling. In fact, when he was on Cinephile, I asked him about that scene, in fact, with Gosling. So check out Place Beyond the Pines. May 22nd, Inglorious Bastards, one of Quentin Tarantino's best films. Christoph Waltz's best movie. He's fantastic in it, as is that movie. On, American, on Amazon Prime, check out Life is Beautiful, Roberto Benigni. Wonderful movie, very sweet, caring story about the depths to which a father will go to save his son. I, I don't know how anybody could do this. How could you could take the Holocaust and turn it into this charming movie which has genuine humor and heart and romance? But Benini pulled it off with Life is Beautiful, which won the Best Foreign Film. Andy won Best Actor, which I have an issue with because Nick Nolte should have won for Affliction. But still, Benini's great. Check out Life is Beautiful. And my favorite comedy, I'm often asked, such serious movies, such heavy movies, my favorite comedy of all time those aren't pillows. Planes, Trains, and Automobiles is available on Amazon Prime. The chemistry of John Candy and Steve Martin is unmatched. Also available now is Manchester by the Sea. Dan and I have spoken often about that. An amazing movie. As Jay Billis told me recently, I'm still depressed after seeing it, and he saw it in October. But don't let that deter you. It's heavy subject matter, but it's really well done. Also, HBO Now, Quick Change is available, just to earn Dan's ire for all you Bill Murray fans. Also on Hulu, on Hulu, rather, Coming to America, Eddie Murphy's funniest movie? What do you say, Dan? I think so. Coming to America. Yeah, I mean, those were, I was a little too young at the time, but watching them back, that's probably the funniest one. Yeah. Set the template, too, for multiple 
characters being played by one actor, him and Arsenio Hall, so funny. And he got game as well. Speaking of fathers and sons, I mentioned Life is Beautiful. Great father and son story there with Denzel Washington and Ray Allen, directed by Spike Lee. Maybe the last great movie Spike Lee made. You're a big Denzel guy and a big basketball fan. Love that movie. Love that movie. It's unbelievable. Denzel's the best. And Ray Allen, hell of an actor out of nowhere. Who knew? Surprisingly good. Jesus Shuttlesworth. That's available right now, streaming just for you. Actors in three words. I like that Dan did this. He solicited your suggestions, cinephile ESPN. So I think we'll continue to do that because there was a lot of people who uh, offered up actors they wanted us to pick. And a lot of people wanted this first one. Yeah, John Goodman, the most popular response, probably. <laughs> I, I don't know why, but sure, you guys will give the people what they want, as JLM likes to say. Right. Number one, jovial. He just always seems like a big guy, big jovial guy, John Goodman. Number two, Roseanne. Yeah, no, good. Will always right. be known yep. for his role, Roseanne. <laughs> Number three is Babe. Because he was in The Babe, and you'd think that guy's going to play a great Babe Ruth, and the movie was terrible. It might be one of the worst Babe movies I've ever seen, and it should have been a home run. Terrible pun. (laughs) And I would have simplified and just gone, Argo, bleep yourself. No, I'm not very good. Okay, pretty good. We'll use that. All right, Helena Bonham Carter. Number one is period piece. Have you ever seen Helena Bonham Carter in a present-day movie? Like, you'll never see her in a movie where it's like contemporary America. It's always frilly costumes and some past centuries ago. Number two, it dives in with this freaky, just freaky eyes, freaky, everything freaky about her. And number three is Burton, of course. It's because of Tim Burton. Maybe that's that, that influence of that freakiness, but just always a little bit unhinged. And I believe she married Burton. Correct? Yes. Yeah. Okay. I would also throw in Marla from Fight Club. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, all right. Marla. Very good. All her right. best role. <laughs> a Canadian is up next. Jim Carrey. Chameleon. The guy can do everything. And I don't mean just comedy and drama. But his impersonations are incredible. You know Spacey's a gift for it. Look up Jim Carrey Brezhnev and thank me later. It's unbelievable how many impressions he does. Dan has a political bent, so I knew he'd like that. Underrated is the next one for Carrey. He's a guy who should have won an Oscar by now. Was not nominated for The Truman Show. Like a turtle sunshine he shouldn't have won an award for. Like and, and the third one is 90s. I think of the 90s, that was his decade. Like he owned that. Like, very few actors have owned a decade. Jim Carrey comedy in the 90s, you knew was going to be sensational. I love the guy. And your guy, Tom Hanks, probably owned it from a dramatic perspective. Yeah, right? no doubt. He was he was the 90s. Heath Ledger. Heartthrob is one. Uh, number th- two is musical. Because I just watched the documentary, I Am Heath Ledger. I had no idea he was so musically inclined. He was directing music videos. He was always listening to music. He found a lot of times the way that he would... Um, find a pathway towards the character was through music, so I had no idea about that. And number three is serious, as in why so serious. Perfect. Yeah. And finally, Samuel L. Jackson. Number one is ubiquitous. This guy's made like a hundred movies. Like it's it, it, they always see the seven degrees of Kevin Bacon. Like it should be Sam Jackson. He's been in everything, every type of genre. He's ubiquitous. Number two is Tarantino. He loves Quentin. He'll always be tied to Quentin. That's his boy. And number three is Fury. Because you think of his best movie, Jewels and Pulp Fiction. You know, anytime you think of Fury, who would you rather have than Sam Jackson delivering a furious monologue than him? And I will strike down upon thee with great vengeance and furious anger. Sam Jackson, Fury. Those are your three words. A Scorsese story. Look up an excellent article in the Globe and Mail, and its topic was recently about how Scorsese's faith-based films never get as much credit as his other films. And in it, they mention there's this exhibit, which is overseas, and I think it's now in New York, actually, um, and they're showing a lot of his films. And the only message Marty gave to the curator and the guy who's putting it together was like, can you just not focus on the violence and the crime? Like everybody always does that. And I think if you were to ask him, hopefully one day he'll be here in Cinephile, one hour interview, he would tell you that, listen, he recognizes and appreciates. People will always say, Martin Scorsese, the director of Mean Streets, Goodfellas, Casino, Upcoming the Irishman, etc. But he has more range and he has a lot more in his tool belt. And if there's one thing I'd like to impart here on the one-year anniversary of Cinephile is that Martin Scorsese is much more than just a filmmaker of gangsters and tough guys. Now, he does it better than anybody else, and his crime films are incredible. But he really is a guy who has passions that overwhelm you. And I think one of the most amazing accomplishments of his career is the fact that he, the patron saint of gangster cinema, pulled off a kid's movie. Because when you hear Martin Scorsese's making a kid's movie, you go, there is zero chance this is going to work out. 
And there is a litany of directors who have gone outside of their box and have failed miserably. So when you hear Invention of Hugo Cabret is this French kid's book to be adapted by Martin Scorsese because his daughter, Francesca, he wants to make a movie for her. You go, oh, no. It's going to be way too sentimental and just gooey, and it just doesn't fit with, with Marty's ethos. And then you watch Hugo, 10 minutes in, and you go, this is terrific. Like, this is fantastic. And Silence is a movie which fits in actually with his themes of sin and guilt and redemption and conviction. Hugo does not have those themes. It does not fit in the Scorsese themes. But in terms of stylistics, it feels like a Scorsese movie because it's got that constant moving camera and these just elaborate shots and gorgeously designed and wonderful production design. So Silence formatically does not have Marty's stylistic touches. Silence feels like another filmmaker making it because the camera is so static, but his themes are very much Scorsesean. With Hugo, visually it still looks like a Marty movie, but his themes are about this child, the street urchin, etc. And the story amazingly works out. It's about this kid, very Dickensian, you know, young kid, orphan, lives inside of a giant clock. And this is his day, and he hangs out all day, and, you know, it's it's just about loneliness and childhood. But it's done, you know, for older kids. This is not exactly, you know, for five-year-old children, but it's like, you know, 12-year-old, 13-year-old kids. And the first hour of the movie kind of just putters along. It's about he and Chloe Grace Moretz and, you know, their, their journeys together. And uh, Sasha Baron Cohen, talk about amazing. Sasha Baron Cohen plays, like, the villain in the movie. Like, how the hell is he showing up in a Martin Scorsese movie and actually playing, if not a dramatic role, in a very kind of, you know, non-comedic role. But again, he's good because he gets the fact he's almost like an Inspector Clouseau, right? Like he's kind of funny, Peter Sellers. He's using physical comedy. Hey, stop that child over there. But but he's still goofy and he's not doing the stuff he'd be doing in Borat and he still makes the movie work. And so the first era, like I said, it's fine. It's a very sweet story. It's just about this child dealing with his issues, etc. The second era is where you started to figure like, oh, now I get why Scorsese wanted to make this movie. Because the little kid, Asa Butterfield, Hugo Cabaret, he stumbles upon the story of Georges Méliès. And Georges Méliès is one of the first filmmakers of all time. And he ends up realizing that there's the, the shopkeeper, who's played by Ben Kingsley, is actually Georges Méliès. And he's like, you're this famous filmmaker. Well, what happened to you? And what happened was, and the movie does a great job of showing it in flashback, was that he was this wonderful filmmaker and very flamboyant and very courageous and visionary. But in fact, because of this terrible recession and financial ruin, at one point, they had to like literally melt the film strips of his movies down and make it as parts of shoes. And like you just see this guy who has now just been completely broken and his whole life has fallen apart. And now you see, oh, now I get why Scorsese made this movie. He's the only guy alive who could make a kid's movie and make it personal because the story ends up being about what? Film preservation, which is like one of the biggest love of your life type themes of Scorsese's work. Any interview you read about him, it's always like, oh, I'm obsessed with film preservation. We found this film from 1937. We're trying to get it restored. Like if we had Ben Mankiewicz on here, he'd probably be like, oh, anytime there's like a film restoration thing, Scorsese's there or he's bankrolled it because he cares so much about old movies and make sure these movies come back. And I just think it's amazing that he's able to make a children's story and still reveal themes that he cares about, which is film preservation. And still, it's not violent. You know, it's not one of his quintessential movies. It's still a very sweet movie. It's sentimental without being maudlin. You know, it's a movie that puts a smile on your face. It's sweet, but it's actually genuinely touching. And at the end, it's about redemption. And when Georges Méliès, when he kind of has his career given back to him, when, when there's a retrospective about his films, and when he's talking to Hugo, he says to Hugo, this is the greatest magic trick that I've ever seen. And I question any of you do not get a lump in the throat when you watch that scene. And in fact, the last few minutes of the movie, as this kid kind of brings his entire family together, the backstory to it, incredibly expensive. Marty wanted to do it in 3D. It cost $150 million. And Graham King, the producer, said, it's a marvelous movie. I think people will talk about it decades from now. I think film purists loved it, of course. It is no surprise. It did great at the Oscars. It won five Academy Awards. And this was the same people that he'd worked with for a while. So as upset as I was on Gangs in New York, Dante Freddy did not win for production design. Well, he won for Hugo. And Thelma Schoonmaker, his great editor, of course, she was recognized with Hugo. And Sandy Powell, like all the Marty people got recognized for Hugo because anybody who loves movies is going to be entranced by this film. But what does that mean for the audiences? They were like, what is this? It's a, it's a story about a kid who lives in the sort of a giant clock and he's finding a secret left by his father. He's going to help this filmmaker find redemption. Not going to be a box office juggernaut. It cost over $150 million. 
Amazingly, it made like 75, which still to me is shocking because like this is not your quintessential kids movie. And Graham King, the producer, has said on record, do I think it's a great film? Yes. Do I think it'll stand the test of time? Yes. But the fact that it was a professional failure really impacted me. And I, I, Marty and I were constantly bickering over it because I understood he's an artist, but he has to understand for $150 million, you got to give me more return on the product. And unfortunately for us, it did not work. So it was a, a critically acclaimed success, 94% Rotten Tomatoes. Like I said, five Oscars. That, that, that's, you think The Departed did well? The Hugo is one of Marty's most celebrated movies by the Academy. Unfortunately, financially did not do well. But I love whenever I meet people who say, oh, I heard you like Scorsese. You must love the movie Hugo. It is a movie for cinephiles and true movie lovers. Please, I implore you, if you've never seen Hugo, you should check it out because you'll be amazed that Marty was able to pull off this great magic trick. Dan, have you seen Hugo? If not, I'm bringing in my copy for you. Do you think I've seen Hugo? I think you have. I did, yeah. What did you think of it? I liked it. Yeah. Sentimental is a great word. No, it's it's really good. It puts a smile on your face, makes you feel good. Right. And you wouldn't expect that from no. this, this filmmaker. The fact he's able to pull it off for Maple Leafs. Let's bring in one of the stars of Brockmire. Tyrell, thank you so much for joining us right now on Cinephile. I had the pleasure of hosting a panel in Las Vegas with Hank Azaria, with Amanda Pete, and with Jen Caserta, the IFC president. And they were raving about you, you know, amidst all the greatness of the show and how funny it is. Man. Hank was telling me, this is true story, Tyrell. He said the difference between you and the next best guy for your role was enormous. And he said, in fact, if you hadn't walked in that door and been so good, they would have had to go in a different direction and just, just find a different actor and a different character. What does that say about your impact on this show? I, I guess that they must have really liked, really liked what I did. Um I don't know. I, I I don't really like to just to speak on like my impact on the show because I'm not. I don't really know. I just kind of you know I uh, show up and I do the the best job I, I possibly can. But it it definitely um, it's a good feeling to know that the the person who like created this and kind of birthed this feel like thinks so highly of 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 a performance of mine. You know. Yeah, I mean, part of it, to be specific, because I know, obviously, you're, you're a humble guy here, but Hank said the writing is important. He said it's one thing, the fact that you understood the character and how to derive humor from it, but he said you really added to the writing, which you don't often find with young actors. Yeah, well, the writing was amazing. Like, Joel George Cooper, who's um, who's uh, the, the pretty much the only writer of the first season, he did a spectacular job. Like, just with Charles's dynamic, uh, um, just by himself and how he interacts with with uh, with Brockmire and Jules, and just the it's written in such a way where I it was easy to understand. Like it was easy to kind of find um, find out what Charles's relationship to these people were and how he fit into this world. So I just kind of you know I I was able to to find it and settle into um, Charles really easily. Yeah, and I think, listen, Hank's character, he's just so funny because he's just this, he's a mess, right? He's a beautiful mess. He's got this wonderful voice, syrupy voice, old-time baseball announcer who's a drug addict and an alcoholic, and it's like, it's just, appearances are deceiving, right? Where's that nice jacket? Oh, he's one of these old school, hey, Jim Brockmeyer, here we go, top of third. And instead, the guy's a mess. And similarly with Tyrell, I mean, I've seen the whole season, of course. The season finale is going to be Wednesday on IFC at 10 o'clock. But I've seen the whole season. The funniest is, like, your interactions with him, because, again, your character is not as he seems to Brockmire. Like, he's shocked at the fact you like girls. He's shocked at the fact you're watching porn on the computer. And so, like, through the eyes of Brockmire, the whole world is warped. But instead, you're just a regular guy. Yeah. And it's um, it's really interesting because Brockmire's, He's definitely messed up. He's definitely like <laughs> not <laughs> not like a, a completely functioning member of society. But um, he's been away for ten years. He's been out of uh, uh, America in the public eye for ten years, and it just um, it just goes to show that um, if you're unaware of like how the culture shifts and things change and, and, and evolve over time and just like the like just how like the public changes and like public opinion uh about things changes then like the world gets really weird like if you if you don't like 
actively uh, try to understand like the the constant fluctuations and like uh, in society, then like coming back into it can be really jarring, and that's something you don't really consider until you see somebody like Jim, who's been gone and like who hasn't been been paying attention for fear of finding news of himself. Um, and he, he's just kind of forced back into this world that has changed drastically in a short amount of time. Yeah. It's amazing how the transformation has gone and to focus on you specifically, you're only 20 years old and you're working with veteran actors like Hank Azaria and Amanda Pete. And as they told me at that panel in Vegas, you guys were on this breakneck schedule. I mean, it's like, it's just, yeah. it's insane how you were able to do eight episodes in 22 days. What was it like not only working with these veteran actors, but to work with that pressure around you? It uh, was simultaneously really hard and extremely easy. <laughs> because <laughs> we had to work, um, we had to do a lot of work really fast. But um, at, the, that, at the same time, that forced us to be prepared to do a lot of work really fast, you know? So, like, we would, uh, we'd, you know, we'd have to prepare the night before, like, just like we have to prepare to do half an episode like the next day. And we knew, okay, we have to do this now because there's no time to like, like really mess around or, or anything. When you get to set, you have to be ready, like jump in head first and work. And it kind of gave, uh, gave us this environment of like, okay, we don't have time to like not feel comfortable doing something. We need to like, get on set and go full out like as, as soon as possible. Um, and that just made it really kind of fun because you're just, and I'm working with Amanda and Hank, they, they're veterans. They know what they're doing. So it was cool to kind of um, to show up and just have everybody on their A game and just throw down, you know? Oh, well, certainly it's a credit to you. Like I said, as a 20 year old kid to already have, uh, such a resume. Congrats to you, man. I'm, I love the fact that Brockmire has been picked up for season two. And like I said, seriously, Hank, Amanda, and Jen could not sing your praises highly enough. So I look forward to whatever projects you have coming up. Terrell Jackson-Williams, thanks so much for the time, man. I thank you very much, man. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much. One year cinephile, as always, to my friend Dan Stanzik, to Pete Genesini, giving us the green light. And most of all, all of you, check us out once again on iTunes, uh, once again, rate a review. Give us out of five stars. I rate the movies and four minute beliefs. Put a review as well. On the next podcast, Dan's going to give his take on the comedian. Fairly certain he's going to scorch me. But until then, we'll see you at the movies. Don't miss out on the next episode of Cinephile. Subscribe to the Adnan Verk Movie Podcast by clicking the Listen tab in the ESPN app.